Father, as we go now to uh, hearing from you in your holy word, I pray that the words of my mouth as the preacher and the thoughts, the questions, the reflections, and the intentions of each one of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Lord, may we be mindful of the fact that we are in your presence and that we have to do now with, with you and speaking to us, encouraging us and challenging us where we most need it. Do this for your name's sake and for our good, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Joy to the World, we've heard this morning, is the most famous Christmas carol in the world. But it originally began, it's a poem written by Isaac Watts, it originally began as a poetic reflection on Psalm 98, verse 4, which says, Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song, rejoice, and sing praises. It's only later that this song about Psalm 98 became famous in, in the Christmas season. In the last verse of his song, Watts speaks about the wonder of his love the wonder of his love. And this morning, from the famous story of Christ's birth, I'd like to sing about or speak about the wonder of his birth. But the problem with wonder is that these days, wonder seems to have fallen on hard times. In the natural world, wonders are increasingly hard to come by. Even the most wonderful mysteries of the universe, we're told, are simply waiting for science to demystify them for us. To quote one prominent atheist, whatever knowledge is attainable must be attained by scientific methods, and what science cannot discover, mankind cannot know. So much for wonder in the natural world. In the world of relationships, it's traditional to talk about the wonder of a relationship between a man and a woman, for instance, marriage in scripture is described as a great mystery, a kind of metaphor for Christ in the church. But where does the wonder of marriage go in a society that either delays marriage as an inconvenience, cancels it as irrelevant, or distorts it, allowing it would seem nearly anything to qualify as lawful marriage, including two persons of the same sex? And what about the world of entertainment? Since it's Christmas, I have to mention the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. What was once a staple or a go-to movie to watch or re-watch for many in the Christmas season seems to me for a younger generation to be hopelessly old-fashioned. George Bailey's humble, small-town morality for many points to a world that no longer exists, the world in which the little guy by simple acts of humanity and kindness, can change an entire community, doesn't seem to be possible anymore. I wonder, are we even capable of telling, let alone enjoying, stories like this anymore? But for me, and I think for many Christians, the Christmas story stubbornly refuses to lose its polish. Somehow it retains that old magic. Now I'm talking about Magic like C.S. Lewis's wardrobe, you know, the kind of magic that only children understand. To me, not unlike Narnia, Christmas seems to be the most wonderful thing of all. 
the most wonderful season of all. But I don't want us to take it for granted, and I don't want you to lose the wonder of Christmas. In the story that has been read, there's many, many, many wonderful elements, but there's three wonders that I think deserve our reflection this morning. The first wonder is this. It is a wonderful written record. If you think about it, this story, which took place over 2,000 years ago, we have in writing. And we don't just have one copy. We have millions of copies, thousands upon thousands, going back centuries, even as early as the very early second century. So in our hands, we have a factual, historical, written record of the birth of Christ. But skeptics are quick to point out both major and minor apparent inconsistencies in the details recorded in Luke's account of the nativity. I wonder, though, are these real bona fide inconsistencies that truly undermine the accuracy of the wonder of the gospel? Or are they more a product of what something scientists call confirmation bias? Now, I'm, I'm a fan of these sorts of discussions and, and debates, and I spend a lot of time thinking about them. We're going to consider one such debate this morning, that which is regarding the registration. The text says, in those days, a decree, that is to say a dogma, a, 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 a kind of uh, an order or a command, went out from Caesar Augustus, the emperor of the Roman Empire, that all the world should be registered. Now, in the King James, it says taxed, because that's an inference from the word registration. The, this, this dogma was in order that the numbers of households would be counted and Caesar could tax them appropriately. Now, what are the problems with this from the skeptic's point of view? Well, here are three. Problem number one is that the Roman historian Suetonius, as he records Caesar Augustus's life, only records three censuses that were taken, one in 19 B.C., 18 B.C., and 11 B.C. But none of these accurately matches the time in which Luke's census should be taking place. Second problem is Luke mentions another figure, not just Caesar Augustus, but the notoriously difficult-to-pronounce name Quirinius. Now, Quirinius is a, is a lesser figure. He is the governor or ruler, is the word, in Syria. The problem is that when Luke's census is taking place, Quirinius was not the ruler in Syria. But notice Luke says this was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. I think Luke is recognizing that in his second volume, the book of Acts, he records Quirinius taking a census in around 6 or 7 AD. Luke's telling us this is not that census, but the other one. But the problem is that at this time, Saturninus was the legate in Syria, in Syria, not Quirinius. The third problem that we're told Luke has with this uh, census is that the Roman practice of taking a census typically allowed people to stay in their own homes. But here we have, in Luke's account, Joseph and Mary leaving Galilee in Nazareth and going to Joseph's ancestral home in Bethlehem. So the critic says, 
something like this. Luke invented the need for the family to travel to Bethlehem in order to make sure that the prophecy in Micah chapter 5 could be fulfilled. So these are the problems, some of the problems that a skeptic will point out. I think you'd agree, if these, if these so-called problems are true, it definitely would take some of the polish off of Christmas. But what can we say in favor of Luke's account of the nativity? At least this part about Caesar's decree. Here's a few possibilities. In the ancient world, censuses weren't like they were today. Actually, they are a little bit like they are today, but just slower. I mean, even the 2020 census took a while to complete. But in the ancient world, censuses could take years to come to completion. So it is theoretically possible that a census in 11 BC could have taken several years, long enough, in fact, to begin to move into the time frame 5, 4 B.C. at the latest or earliest when we could expect Christ to have been born. Secondly, not all the censuses were taken by Caesar, Augustus, were recorded by Suetonius. We know from Caesar's uh, records, he, he actually took detailed records of the acts of his imperial rule and recorded them. We don't have that record anymore, but they were published in public places when Caesar was alive. We do have copies of them. We know that the data recorded include censuses that Suetonius didn't acknowledge. Plus, Caesar could have appointed someone else as censor or commissioned even someone to take a census in his name, such as King Herod. He was a known sympathizer to the imperial court and encouraged Roman taxation because it would have benefited him. Such indirect censuses, which is what Leon Morris calls these, may have required Joseph to travel to Bethlehem because living in Nazareth, he had no family records at all to substantiate himself. And in his specific case, it also may have been that if it was a census ordered by Herod because it was a Herodian census, it may have differed with the instructions than the normal Roman pattern. What about the problem of Quirinius? He's described as the ruler of Syria. Well, the Greek word for ruler, which is hegemonon or hegemon, can refer to the primary ruler, the legate, who would have been the overall governor in that region. But a hegemon or a hegemon can also refer to lesser levels of governmental authority. So it's possible that while Saturninus was the overall legate in Syria that Quirinius had a lesser role in Saturninus's administration. And we have some historical records that suggest that this could be the case. In the end, it turns out that we are sort of left at a stalemate, aren't we? I have my claim, and you have yours. I have my books, and you have yours. It seems to me that it is ultimately about your prior assumptions. I believe if you're honest and open in your inquiry of the scriptures, there are reasonable, logical, rational explanations as to why this is the only record we have in antiquity of this particular census. So it comes down to whether or not you actually are open, even a little bit, to the wonder 
of the written testimony by Luke, the beloved physician, of this miraculous birth in Bethlehem. So it's a wonderful written record. That's the first wonder. What's a second wonder that bears our examination this morning? We're polishing up the silver on our Christmas wonder here. I'd like you to consider, secondly, the nativity's wonderful poverty. That's right, it's wonderful poverty. I'm not saying that it's somehow good that the king of kings was born in such a poor and neglected manner. I'm saying that it's shocking. It's a wonder that it happened in this way. Consider the poverty of the place where he was born. Commentator J.C. Ryle puts it this way, he was not under the roof of his mother's house, but in a strange place, in an inn. When he was born, he was not placed in a carefully prepared cradle, like some of you have prepared for your children when they enter your lives. He was laid in a manger, for there was no room for him in the inn. Neither was he situated in a palace, which would be suitable for the heir to David's throne. But I'm not just amazed at the building where Christ was born. The town itself was ill-suited for the birthplace of royalty. Here's how Micah puts it in the prophecy I just mentioned, Micah 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you of all places, I'm inserting that, shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Micah says that Bethlehem is too little from among the clans of Judah. The greatest comes from the least likely place. Bethlehem, even Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, has a bad reputation. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? What a contrast in a world where your hometown seems to matter. But as it turns out in God's eyes, the things that matter in the eyes of the world, the things that are wonderful for the world, aren't wonderful for him. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul's wonder at the humiliation of Christ in 2 Corinthians. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Not only was he born in a suspect location in extremely poor conditions, he was also born in a suspect fashion. This I want us to consider, the poverty of how Christ was born. This is a society, ancient Jewish culture, in which adultery was punishable by death. So we have a young girl who is betrothed to be married and is found to be pregnant. This is not a great way to begin your career as the savior of the world. The text is clear that Joseph had his doubts. He actually resolved to put her away quietly, which is a euphemism for saying he was planning to undergo the Jewish ritual of divorce. But when an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream, the angel assured Joseph that this wonderful, amazing, shocking thing was actually from the hand of God. So the manner of Christ's birth is, is wonderful in that the Son of God was subject to the rumor mill of first century Galilee. Now, 
Mary was doing fine, living on her own. She was living with her cousin Elizabeth for three months. Why did Joseph bring her with her, with him? I think it was because he wanted to spare her the ignominy of being uh, gossiped about in their small hometown. So not only is the place, but the manner of Christ's birth is truly wonderful, a sight to behold, too deep for words, if I can put it that way. It's a wonderful written record. It's wonderful poverty. And the third wonder here that I think we need to notice is its wonderful worship. The vast majority of the text is actually taken up with this theme of worship beginning in verse 8 all the way down to Mary's resolve to ponder and reflect in her own mind. That's her own resolution of personal worship. Has there ever been a worship scene, though, like this one with the angels and the shepherds? These anonymous fringe day laborers are commissioned as the first apostles of the gospel. They go to see the one that the angels told them about, and then they go out to tell everything that they had seen. The angels themselves form a great worshiping community. It's a multitude, it says. The word in Greek is it's a full company. So it's, there's so many angels, it's like the skies are overflowing with them. And their words, specifically, are wonderful. Glory to God in the highest and on earth with those with whom he is pleased. Now the shepherd's first reaction isn't wonder, it's actually fear. The Phil Henry translation is, they were absolutely petrified, shaking in their boots. But the angel takes them by the hand, so to speak, and says, don't be terrified, be amazed, be in wonder. The reason given is that good news of great joy has come to earth, to the shepherds. What's wonderful about this worship to me are two things. One, the highest created beings possible, angels, entrust the greatest message ever, the gospel, to the lowliest human beings in society, shepherds. This is the most world-impacting message, yet it's delivered to the least important people in the room. What a wonder. I said it's a world-impacting message because it's one which not only brings glory to God in the highest degree, that's verse 14, but it also brings the greatest blessing to men and women on earth, peace. How can one message both maximally glorify God and maximally benefit man? I thought man was a sinner and had nothing to do with God. I thought man and God were at enmity with one another, and they are. Paul would say, The mystery of the gospel is that God in the gospel is both just, which is to say he's glorified, and the justifier of the one who believes in Christ, which is to say peace on earth with whom he is pleased. That's a wonderful message. It truly is, and it's worthy of worship. Well, my my message this morning is brief. In conclusion, I think poetry is good for wonder. We've just finished a sermon series in the Psalms, and I pointed out throughout this, the 15 or 16 sermons in this series that poetry itself is, is helpful to cultivate our imaginations, our, our spirit of wonder. Poetry helps 
develop our spiritual lives. It, it addresses us emotionally, and wonder touches on this emotional factor of our human constitution. I think that's because unlike prose, poetry comes in on the side. It uses vivid imagery and symbolism and metaphors and describes things indirectly, and they causes us to think in new and fresh ways. Well, I gave a title to the sermon series this, this fall, Psalms of My Life, and I've told you that I borrowed that title from a book of poetry written by Joe Bailey, the father of one of my mentors, Tim. In that collection, Joe writes this poem, which I'm going to read for you. It's called A Psalm of Christmas. It seems appropriate for Christmas Day. Lord, we blame the innkeeper for only giving you the stable when his inn was full. But what about all the others who lived in Bethlehem that night when you were born? Why were all of their houses that weren't full of guests fast closed against the one who contained you? God bless our little homes this Christmas time. Make them big enough to welcome you, contained in those for whom the world has no room except a cold and lonely Christmas day. Well, in applying this morning's message about the wonder of Christ's birth, I want to encourage you, first of all, to check your expectations. One, one takeaway, I think, is to recognize that wonderful things don't often come in bright, shiny packages with ribbons and bells on them sitting beneath a tree. They're often surprisingly decorated, even in camouflage. Bailey's poem mentions not just the innkeeper, but all of Bethlehem found no room for Mary and the baby she carried in her womb. That's a profound thought, isn't it? I mean, the story doesn't tell us about any of the other places that Joseph and Mary knocked, but it seems to me they locked, knocked on at least a dozen doors. Bailey wonders, why wasn't any other place open? I think this is the reason. If we're so full of ourselves, we have no room for God. Maybe this is why the young seem better suited to wonder than adults. Maybe this is why Jesus says, unless you repent and become like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. The blessing of the gospel is its wonder. It's surprising but only for those who are kids at heart. As the saying goes, grace is amazing. May it always be amazing. In a world of cynicism, sarcasm, and sharpness, in other words, my house and my heart, in general, it's hard to keep the focus on God's amazing grace. It's easy to get inward, selfish, and grim. Happens all too quickly. A second takeaway, I think, is this. I mentioned the wonder of the written record, remember? If the written record of the gospel is wonderful, then we should read it. You should study it. Not all of you are going to get into the nitty-gritty of history and get down into Suetonius, the Roman historian, and Saturninus, and know how to pronounce Quirinius. See, I love that. I just did it again just because I enjoy it. Whether you're into debates or of a scientific bent, whatever your nature may be, the scriptures are important. They're not irrelevant. 
They're not fictional. Maybe you're just too busy and inclined to think, the Bible can't help me finish what's on my list. And I struggle with both of these categories, by the way. Either way, the story of God is the most compelling story you will ever read. But it takes commitment. It's not like reading a normal book. It's not like reading a novel. Reading scripture requires a certain skill set that improves with practice. I think now is a good time to resolve and renew your commitment to reading the Bible in some organized fashion and exploring some questions in the scriptures, investigating things like the Roman census and whether or not it took place. Make this a habit. I don't think you'll regret it. And finally, I want to encourage you to include others in your life. This is the no room in the inn idea. It isn't just the right thing to do. It's the only thing that Christians can do. There is no other lifestyle available to you as a Christian other than including difficult, lonely, misfit strangers in your life. It's not an option. It's not the advanced course. It is what you are as a Christian because it's who God is in including you. It's what he's done. You see, God in Christ has made you rich beyond imagination. That's that 2 Corinthians chapter 8 passage I read. Through his poverty, you have become rich. You've been adopted as a son of the king or a daughter of the king. Therefore, all the promises of God in Christ are yes. Actually, the, the entire world belongs to you. The meek will inherit the earth, we're told. The gospel is true, wonderfully true. Making room in your life for others who don't yet know that or who are struggling to believe that because of circumstances, sometimes beyond their control, sometimes that they brought upon themselves, you do more than follow Christ's example. You're actually being a Christian. You're playing your part in ushering in the wonderful world, the wonderful life which God designed you and all people to enjoy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonder of Christmas, and I, for one, need to be reminded of this. I suspect my brothers and sisters do as well. These familiar words in Luke 2, which many of us have heard many, many times, are easy to take for granted, easy to let them roll over our heads, wash through us without recognizing, with polish, how beautiful and amazing they are. I pray that grace indeed would be amazing for all of us this morning as we think about Christmas, as we go to our family traditions, whatever they may be. Lord, I particularly pray if anyone is feeling lonely and, and uh, neglected today that they would find a home first and foremost in you. <clears throat> and then with other brothers and sisters in Christ, if not in this church, than others in their lives. They will remind them how wonderful Christmas is in the birth of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, 
adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.